So the main issue in Galatians is circumcision. So, you know, to, to be a good, you know, Jew, one got circumcised. That's part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. So, you know, men all day, every day would be reminded of their covenant with God. Uh, you, you couldn't miss it. And it was a distinguishing mark, of course, among the Jewish people. But by the time the gospel of Christ, now that Christ has been dead, he's raised from the dead, he has died for the sins of the whole world, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. Now that Paul is going out and proclaiming that gospel to people, you have people saying, well, do I, don't I need to become Jewish first to, to, to get the gospel of the Jewish Messiah? So that was a big disagreement in the early church. And if you read Acts, like Acts 15 in particular, which we, which we did read last time, you'll see that this was a real issue in the church. They were trying to figure out how it was that a Jewish, you know, Messiah, a Jewish message dealing with Jewish law, how that had to do with everyone else in the world. So that was really the question that, that Paul faced because when he left Galatia, people came in later and they said, you know, the gospel is great and we love it and we agree with Paul and he's a great guy and all that, but you still have to get circumcised. So that's why Paul is saying, no, no, if you, if you, if you think that you can combine you know, the gospel with the law, you don't understand the nature of the gospel. So one thing that's always on my test for, for people to get baptized is what is the gospel and what is the law? And so the law, very simply, is what you should do. It's four words, what you should do. Yep. And then, um, and the gospel is what God has done for you. Okay. So the law is still in effect. Okay, we, we still should be obedient to God. It doesn't save us. That's what Paul's communicating in Galatians. It doesn't save us. If we're saved through the law, then, then perfection is what's demanded. Paul's going to say that. We have to be perfect. So a lot of people say, you know, yeah, I think I'll go to heaven because I've been a good person. Well, you may go to heaven, but it's not because you're a good person, because nobody's saved by being a good person. Bad people don't go to hell because they're bad, and good people don't go to heaven because they're good. That's the scandal, really, of the cross, is that bad people go to heaven and good people can go to hell. Um, in fact, if you look at who Jesus has the most issues with, it's good people. It's, it's religious Pharisees. It's the, it's the people who, who believe that they are right with God because of, because of their obedience to the law. That's who Jesus challenges more than anybody else. Now, he says to the sinners, repent. You know, he doesn't say, go ahead, be a sinner, be a bad person. That, that's not what he's saying either. And certainly Paul would say that we, you know, we ought to live for holiness. We ought to seek God's holiness. We should, you know, not ignore the law of God. We just need to understand the law of God is not what saves us. Faith in Christ is what saves us. Okay, and we looked at Galatians 2 earlier where that, that in fact, let me just read that real quickly. Uh, 2.15 um, he says, Paul writes in Galatians 2.15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You know, all Jews thought that all Gentiles were sinners. So he's using the language of like being, you know, Gentiles, anyone who's not Jewish. So he's basically saying, you know, yeah, you know, we're, we're Jewish people. We're Jewish, Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. Yet, that's, that's a really important conjunction. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in 
Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So couldn't be much clearer than that. You can't be justified by works of the law, and he's saying that to Jews. Um, you're justified by, by faith. Also, I'll say this too, in, in Lutheranism, in, in Reformed theology generally, we, we often talk about the four solas, Sola, the Latin word for like only or alone, like a solo. So the four solas are um, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and scripture alone. Um, so when we talk about salvation, and that's what Galatians is really about, we're talking, you, you are saved by faith alone, as opposed to law, works of the law, through grace alone, so that your faith is a gift of grace from God. Your, your faith is not even a work. It's, a, it's, it's God's calling upon you, that giving you the, the gift of faith. Um, through, uh, through Christ alone, so um, the only reason that we can trust in our salvation is because of the work of Christ, not anything that we've done. And we know all that through Scripture alone. There's not extra revelation that we receive. And this was a, a distinction that the Reformed folks made with the Catholic Church, because the Catholics have Scripture and tradition. And they see those as equal sources of authority. And the tradition actually kind of depends on who you ask what the tradition even is. Some people say it's popes and councils. Some people would say there's also a oral tradition from the apostles through the years. So all the things about Mary, for example, you know, the, the birth of Mary or her conception, her assumption into heaven, those are not in the Bible. And most Catholics agree they're not in the Bible. So how do you have it as a dogma that you have to believe to be a Catholic? Because it's part of the tradition. And, of course, the other problem with the tradition in that regard is that it ends up trumping Scripture. Because how do you know what Scripture really says? Well, the church interprets it. Oh, okay. So, so, so there's no way Rome can really be reformed. That's the problem that reformed people have with the Roman Catholic Church. The, the, the reformed churches can always be reformed. Lutherans can always be reformed because the scripture is, is the sole authority. The Roman church really holds sway over the scripture. I mean, it really, really does because they interpret the scripture. So, you know, if the people who want to keep things the way that they are, if you will, and I'm not saying that's always for bad reasons or anything like that, but, you know, if they always are the ones who have the final say over scripture, then scripture doesn't really hold sway over them. So that's, the, that's a real difference between Reformed and Catholics. And it's still a difference to this day, and it's still a problem, I would say, you know, to this day. So let's go through the rest of Galatians. Um, I don't know that we'll read it all word by word, but I did point out some, some things. So in Galatians 4, um, he's starting, Paul's starting to make a kind of a difference between um, an heir and a child. And this is important because... Remember, Jews would all have had a, a lineage back to the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and they would have been, you know, I mean, Jesus was a Jew. I mean, there would have been that whole family connection. But what about, an, you, know, uh, you know, an heir, you know, someone who's not one of the children? So let's just, I'll just read a little bit of a chapter four here. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Uh, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. I made a, I made a, I need to make a correction. I made a distinction between an heir and a child earlier, and what I meant to say was a, a, a basically a, a natural child and a, a, an adopted child. And so that's what he says when he says in verse 5, to, re, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we Gentiles are adopted into the family, in essence. We're not Jewish. Yeah. No, no, it, and, and actually, that doesn't even matter. You could be a Jew and be damned. You could be a Gentile and be saved. Ah, good question. Yes. I mean, it, it was impossible to separate at one point, right? Because you had the 12 tribes. Remember, the lineage is Abraham. That's the Genesis 12. That's the big division we talked about. If Abraham, then his son is Isaac. Then he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And then the promise comes through Jacob. Who God renames Israel, and so Jacob has the twelve sons. Remember, the youngest is Joseph. They end up in Egypt because of the famine. All the brothers end up together. They and then they end up in Egypt four hundred some odd years. And so those are the twelve tribes. You know, twelve sons of Israel. So, and remember, Judah or Jude is is only one of the twelve sons. But later, that became the name of the southern half of Israel. You know, Israel was the ten, there are ten tribes in what was called Israel, the northern half, because after King, after King Solomon, who was King David's son, the kingdom split. They didn't like each other. You had ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south, and the, in the south, I believe it was the Levites, the priests, and, and, and Judah. And so when the Romans came in, they just called everybody Judeans, which we shortened to Jews later. So I always like to, that's why I usually like to call them Israelites or Hebrews because, you know, because it's 12 tribes of people. And of course, over time, what happened too is that as conquering people would come in, some of those people would intermix, you know, marry the conquerors. So the Samaritans, for example, were in the northern half of that area, what we would now call Israel. And they intermarried with pagan invaders, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and stuff like that. So the Samaritans are always considered dirty half-bloods. You know, that's why when Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, it's a scandal to the people listening because he was telling it to good Jews. And so he makes the Samaritan, the dirty half-Jew, the hero of the story because he, he actually acts as a neighbor to the person who's dying rather than the good Jews who pass him by on the street. So, um, now the religious practices of the Mosaic Covenant, remember we talked about the Mosaic Covenant, it began and it ended. It ended because Christ fulfilled it. Um, And so that's part of what Paul talks about in Galatians 2, is you've got the Mosaic Covenant, we're going to get to it in a minute, which has run its course, and then you have the Abrahamic Covenant. Abraham was 500 years before Moses, and we're still under the Abrahamic covenant because we're now we're we are the nations that Abraham was promised. In that sense, we're children of Abraham through adoption, and that's where this section kind of comes into play. How am I a children of Abraham? Well, it's not because I'm a Jew. It's not because I'm a Hebrew. 
It's because I've been adopted into the family through Christ. So modern day Judaism, you know, I mean, it's kind of hard to talk about because so much is, it's so different now, you know, and I, I think I can say that without being offensive. You know, you still have a few Orthodox Jews, but not many, not many who are really seeking to be law observant. I mean, I don't know what percentage of people who are Jews actually follow kosher even, but my guess is that it's probably under 20%, maybe under 10%. So is it a religion? Well, it's a, I would say it, it, it's a people that had religious customs. So um, I know people, though, who say that they're atheist Jews. So they regard it as a Jew, as an ethnic identity. You know, their mother was Jewish. They're Jewish. They're even Zionists. That is, they actually defend the state of Israel. You know, they, they take the side of Israel over against, say, Palestine. And, of course, Israel was sort of created after World War II and the Holocaust to give Jews a safe place to live, perhaps ironically now. Um, but he's an atheist, Zionist Jew. So what do you do with that? I don't know. It, it, it gets tricky because... Um, so I think, yes, it, it, is, it, is, it is a religion. I mean, there's still, you know, across the street, that way was a synagogue. If you look at that old theater, yes, yes, you know, see the Star of David. So that was a, this was a, a heavily Jewish neighborhood. Well, I will say that, you know, Mormonism, and this is a long story, but I'll try to keep it real brief. If, if you ever study Mormonism, one of the things the Book of Mormon talks about is... My name wasn't Okay. So part of the story is that after the Tower of Babel, we talked about that in Genesis 11, and the people scattered, if my memory is correct, people came from there to the new land, to the new world. So before Columbus... And so basically the argument is that you had two tribes of people, and so the Native Americans are basically, well, they're, they're, they're Jews. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so, um, because they, they came here after the Tower of Babel. So that was the theory that Joseph Smith, the great pioneer of Mormonism, put forth in his revelation. And so, the, the, so can you do a DNA test? That's what I was getting to. Can you do a DNA test to a modern Jew and a Native American? Yes, you could. You know, it's not that they have any kind of supernatural difference, but their DNA is such that you could distinguish, in theory, a modern, you know, a Jewish person with Native Americans, and it turns out they have nothing in common. So they're, they're, there's different enough to where they can honestly say, you know, this is not, you know, the same. You know, and historically... And I don't know if this is scientifically valid or not. I'm not vouching for it because as a Christian, it doesn't matter to me. But historically, there were three races. You know, there was, a, I don't even know it's called Caucasian, but Negroid and basically Asian. I mean, you know, the, the, historically, people would kind of put people, there were, there were the, the differences between those three people groups were enough to, but I don't even like talking about that because, you know, it's so irrelevant to Christianity. Um, in fact, we ended Galatians 
chapter 3, with its rather famous verse that Paul says, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Uh, and at least it's a part of the gospel, that it's for everybody. Um, there is no one on earth that is removed from the power of the gospel or the possibility of the gospel because of their race or age or sex or anything like that. And uh, now that doesn't mean that men and women are all the same in every way. And that's a problem we're facing in our modern age, is that we can't even make gender distinctions uh, between people without going to jail, you know, in some places. So, Okay, but Paul's talking here about adoption, and that's an important motif because he's, it's his way of saying you are truly in the family of God, um, you know, through, through adoption. Let me just kind of keep reading a little bit. Uh, verse 8 here, he says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, to rather to be known by God, important distinction to be made, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary part principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So very quickly, he's talking about how, you know, you came to know the true God, because there is only one God of the entire universe. And, and he, what he's saying is you came to know that God, but now you're going back to uh, those that are by nature not gods. And I believe what he's saying is you're going back into paganism. You're going back into idolatry. You're going back into worshiping these stupid little pieces of wood, you know, hoping that they'll bring you some kind of favor. Why, why would you be doing that? So the problems do seem to be more than just going back into Judaism. The problem, I mean, that seems to me to be a problem of some people wanting to go back into paganism. And then he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. That seems to be a reference to like, you know, um, particular like holidays or, you know, and I don't know what those would be exactly within paganism, but... Some people, for, for, for that reason, do not observe birthdays. Uh, like Jehovah's Witnesses, I believe, do not observe birthdays, as, as an example. Uh, and I think that's a little bit silly. Um, but, you know, there are people, you know, paganism is basically nature worship. And, and, and I mean, when you really boil it down, it's, it's about nature manipulation for your benefit. And gods are in control of portions of nature. And so therefore, days and months and seasons and years becomes important because you're living your entire, your entire godly existence is in a cycle of nature, you know. And so I think what Paul's saying, you don't have to live that way anymore. There is one God of all creation. And, and, and so you don't have to observe these, these special days. Um, he talks about how he, in verse 13, that he came to know them because when he preached the gospel to them, he had a bodily ailment, and he says, Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but receive me as an angel of God. Um, doesn't literally mean literally an angel, but a messenger, which is really what the word angel means. Um, so he, he's kind of referencing there their intimate relationship that they had, that Paul came to them as someone who had a, a severe ailment of some sort, and they cared for him. And that's how he came to preach the gospel to them. So he's kind of pleading with them. You know, do you remember the relationship we used to have? How you cared for me and you, you, you watched out for me and, you, every, and all this? And, you know, 
you know, why, why can't we get back to that, um, to put it simply? Um, so he says, verse uh, 18, he says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So he's really appealing to them. It's a, it's a really a heartfelt letter. He's pouring his heart out here to them saying, you know, how have I become your enemy? We, we once were so close in the work of the gospel. How has everything changed because I've left? So let's keep going. Um, he, he starts now in verse 21, and he, he talks about Hagar and Sarah. Now, if you remember, we talked about this, I think, quickly when we did our Old Testament review. When we talked about Abraham, Remember that Abraham was given a promise by God that he would be the father of many nations. That is the mark of, I mean, remember we had, we talked about Genesis 1 to 11. You have creation and fall, you have the flood, you have the Tower of Babel. And after that is when everything changes. You have God entering a covenant with Abraham, and the promise then is that Abraham and Sarah, his wife, would have a child together. And, and eventually they do. But if you remember, there was a detour in there where Abraham... Uh, encouraged by Sarah, had a child, Ishmael, with Hagar. And Hagar was a slave um, of Sarah. And it it didn't end well. Uh, They did have a son, Ishmael, but it wasn't the son of the promise, so eventually Hagar and Ishmael were banished, and uh, eventually Isaac is born. But let let me just read a little bit here in verse uh, 22, starting in 22. It says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Okay. Now, one thing it's important to note. He is not saying that the story of Abraham and Sarah and Abraham uh, and uh, Hagar and yeah, Ishmael and Isaac is an allegory. He's not saying that. He's not saying it's a historical myth or anything like that. He's saying that he's going to use that event as an allegory of what the situation is presently. So the problem with Hagar is that she was not part of the promise. Ishmael was not part of the promise. So allegorically, he's saying that the modern Jew that Paul is dealing with is like the slave. Okay, They're children of slavery because they're bound by the law. And what are slaves bound to? They're bound by the law. They have to do what the master says. He's not saying that modern Jews in his day were, were descendants of Ishmael. 
Okay, he's not saying that. He's just saying allegorically, those who persist in the law are, are like the slave woman. Okay? He's saying to, and this is, would have been scandalous to some people who heard it probably, he's saying to Gentiles, you are like children of Isaac. You're children of blessing, children of promise. Why? Because if you accept the grace of Jesus Christ, if you accept Christ through faith, you receive, with no cost to you at all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You achieve salvation. So you are free. So you're free, not by your lineage or anything like that. So he's basically saying, you are, he says, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So for those who have faith in Christ, they are children of promise. Those who still insist that the way to God is through the law, they're like slave children. That's really offensive language to people who felt they had a special relationship to God and had, it had been nourished for all of these centuries. You know, you start to see the offense that Jesus was to the Jewish people and the offense that Paul was when he went preaching Christ in synagogues and, and, and places like that afterwards. Pagans, remember, thought that Paul was weird. Pagans thought that the Jewish people were weird to begin with, and then that a crucified man would be the savior of the whole world. That was a really bizarre concept for a pagan to have to conform to. And by the way, in our modern age, I think we're surrounded essentially by pagan and pagan ideas. New age ideas are, are essentially pagan ideas. I still, I talked to someone just the other day who says, well, I think God can be known in nature, you know, um, and a really nice guy, but that's a fundamentally pagan idea. You know, that God, I mean, can God be known in nature? Yeah, God can be known in nature, but God's also known in revelation. Anyway, I mean, what, what, what Paul was saying to Jews, though, was a real, and what Jesus himself said. You have to understand how offensive this would have been. I mean, these are people who, for the entire Old Testament, had been nourishing a relationship with the one and only God, and now they feel like the rug is being taken out from under them. They feel like it's being taken away. You know, it's like if you have a favorite toy when you're a kid, and then your parents come in and say, I need you to share this toy with your friend. You're not going to lose it, but I need you to share it. Do children like to share toys? Sometimes, maybe, on a good day. Yeah, okay. But I believe Mm-hmm. And somebody back in time to you and start talking, start telling you, you guys don't follow the right or the right or said this. It's pretty hard to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It's hard for a person like a human being to change that. Yeah. Right? If someone came to me, as atheists do or non believers, and say Christianity is not true, you know, yeah. I've got to learn how to manage my emotions. And then I have to, you know, what I do is I'll then. There are a lot of arguments I've tried to learn, not by memory, but honestly thinking through the arguments of the historical resurrection and the fact that anything is possible without God at all. You know, that's where I always come back to. I mean, I always, the thing about, the problem with atheism is that it's utterly irrational. I mean, I mean, it's just on its face, it's impossible. Because if you think, if you trace back the atheist claims to the source, and you really think about what's being said, 
You're talking about something coming from nothing. You're talking about all that is coming from nothing. Or they have to admit ignorance and they have to say, well, I don't know how everything came to be, you know. And or you're, they sometimes end up with bizarre theories. Science. Yeah. Uh, well, like alien seeded life on Earth, for example. You ever see the movie Prometheus? The uh, alien prequel, I guess. Yeah. And now they've made the sequel to Prometheus, which I haven't seen yet. But the first 10 minutes of Prometheus is about that idea. It's about how, how an alien came to a planet and seeded DNA, in essence. If you remember, the alien dies and his like, cell goes into the water or something like that. And, uh, and there was a movie a few years ago. It was called Expelled. It was about intelligent design being taught in schools and stuff. And Ben Stein hosted it. Remember Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Ben Stein? Okay. And um, anyway, there's a section where a scientist, Richard Dawkins, says, you know, he keeps being pressed. Well, yeah, evolution, even if evolution accounts for diversity in nature, how do you account for the origin of life? How do you account for creation? That's a different question entirely. He says, well, I don't know. He keeps getting pressed, and he finally says, well, maybe aliens seeded life on Earth. Well, that doesn't help at all, because then you just have to ask where the alien came from. So atheists don't have answers for that. And I realize they think we have simple answers, because we just point to God and say, well, God did it, you know. But uh, in the end, I'm, you know, but those are the arguments that I would make, you know, when someone comes to me and says Christianity is not true. So I understand, you know, the difficulty of going to, say, in Paul's case, who was a Jew, a very devout Jew who probably had most of the Old Testament memorized, going to Jews and saying, you have to share your, your toy. And that, I don't mean to sound pejorative or anything. I just mean it's, to put it in childlike language, it's like saying, you have a wonderful thing, but it's also for the rest of the world. These are people that had come to accept that everyone else in the world was a nasty, dirty sinner. They didn't deserve God's favor. And now you have to just give it over to them? Uh... That's not an easy thing to do. That's not an easy thing to do. So, Christians have the same problem now. Um, you ever been to a church where you know the church? They're the only they're the only people that think they're good enough. That's the same problem. Uh, that's part of why Christians need to be doing evangelism so that they have the gift, but they are also sharing it with other people. Let me read a little bit. I'm going to do a little bit more highlighting here, not reading through the whole whole thing, but. Um, let's look at the beginning of chapter 5. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace. Okay, so he's saying, look, this is an all-or-nothing proposition, and that is the nature of the gospel. That's why I say, what is the law? What is the gospel? The gospel is not... Sometimes people think... They hear a lot about love when they come to church, right? And they hear that the thing God, Jesus says, he says the greatest command is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And since we think of love as a good thing, if you ask, if I went to the street with a microphone and I asked Christians, what is the gospel? I bet you half of them would say, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the gospel. That's the law. Sounds good, so people think it's the gospel. The law is what you should do. 
Remember, the gospel is what God has done for you. The gospel is God's work on your behalf. It's you passively receive it. The law is what you actively do. So that's why Paul can say, if you're going to get circumcised, you're placing yourself under the law. And if you're going to place yourself under the law, you had better fulfill it perfectly. Because now what you're saying to God is, you're rejecting God's grace, you're rejecting his free gift, and instead what you want is a, you're going to depend on your own obedience to the law. Okay? So Paul is laying out here an all-or-nothing understanding of law and gospel. The gospel has to be totally, freely given by God. It cannot be earned. If you want to earn it, you have to earn it perfectly. And if anyone thinks that they can forget, you know, just the Ten Commandments, you know, you've got to obey all of the law. See, he's talking now about the ceremonial law as well. He was writing this when the temple still existed. See, the temple was destroyed, the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Galatians was probably written in about 49 or 50. There were still people going to the temple and making sacrifices as good Jews. Now, now we can't understand, we can't possibly get that. But at the time, you could still be a good Jew. You could still fulfill the 613 laws of, the, of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. What do you do now, though? See, now you couldn't even do that. You can't even go to the temple to make a sacrifice. Let me, let me give a modern... Let me give a typical Christian teaching that is, I think, a corollary to this. And that's the tithe. You know what the tithe is? You've probably heard about it a lot. The giving of 10, 10%. Okay? The tithe is part of the Mosaic Covenant. That's good news to Christians. Well, I remember what I said about the Mosaic Covenant. It began and it was fulfilled by Christ. The tithe was a tax. It was a tax to support the life of the temple. The temple was big. It was expensive. Okay? You had to give the priests money to live. So the tithe was you would give 10% to the temple of your crops and livestock and so on and so forth. If you couldn't give the thing, because remember Jews were exiled before, you know, at, during period. So you had Jews all over the, the, the world. They would come to Jerusalem three times a year to make sacrifice. So, but if they couldn't make, if the fruit would rot, for example, by the time they got to Jerusalem, they would sell it where they lived and bring the money. And they'd bring that into the temple. And it was 10%. It was the first fruits. And there's no doubt the tithe is biblical in that sense. But today, Christians will say, Christian pastors will say, as a Christian, you have to give 10%. Or they teach on it in such a way that people leave thinking they have to give 10%. And so I don't teach the tithe because... It's part of the Mosaic Covenant that's been fulfilled. Now, should Christians give? Yes, Christians ought to give to support the life of the church. You know, if we want to have a church that does gospel ministry and provides worship services, it does cost something. Uh, different churches do different different ways. You know, uh, one of the things that we do here is I've tried to figure out ways to supplement our, our giving with rental income. Do I really like doing that? Not really. But it's either that or i got to be a part-time bus driver, you know, because we're a small church. So, um, you know, a lot of pastors go into insurance, so maybe one day I'll be giving you a call, see if you have any openings. Um, you know, <laughs> you're growing quickly, huh? Um, so, um, 
But sometimes when Christian pastors talk about giving and offering, and when they talk about 10%, it makes me uncomfortable because I believe they're confusing the Mosaic command to tithe with you know, the free giving and charitable giving that Christians ought to engage in. Um, because we're not under the tax anymore. We don't have a temple. We don't pay temple tax anymore. So that's a modern example where I think there's a corollary to circumcision. Uh, now, I've known some really, really good people, like good pastors who, you know, who teach tithing, and they do it in a way where it's not required by law, but it's like such a good recommendation that they, you know, they, they're able to make that distinction. But a lot of pastors don't make that distinction. They're just like, you're a Christian, the Bible, and they quote the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant. The Bible says you got to give 10%, so give 10%. The Mormons, not only do they say you have to give 10% of the gross, not of the net, so you got to give 10% of everything you make before taxes, they look at your W-2. Oh, yeah. 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 Really? Yeah. yeah. So, so if you want to talk about obedience to an old law, wow, you know, that's, that's, you know, so to me that, that is kind of the most, you know, circumcision is not an issue anymore, but if I had to pick one thing that places people back under the Old Testament covenant, probably that's the most common, the way that it's taught, it can be taught well. See, one thing I say to people too is why stop at 10%? <laughs> you, know, you can give 20%, 30%. I mean, I could think of some millionaires that could live on 50% of their money just fine, you know, so why stop at 10%? But um, there are other examples, kind of more fringe groups that do talk about Sabbath observance, Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, some of them are more strict than others, but some of them will talk about the uh, honor of the Sabbath, and when we get to the Ten Commandments, we'll talk about that. You know, that would be an example where if you're going to be a good Christian, you have to honor the Seventh-day Sabbath. Today, Saturday Sabbath, because originally that was the seventh day Sabbath. Saturday is the seventh day of the week. Christians observe Sunday as a Sabbath because it's the day of resurrection and it's the day of new creation because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. So there was a time when Christians deliberately moved the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. It wasn't an accident. It's because Sunday is the day of resurrection. Um, but there are still some to this day, some Christians who say worship ought to be on Saturday, you should rest on Saturday. And I would say you're putting people back into the Mosaic Covenant. So the Sabbath is only the Jewish tradition. You know, well, I would, I would say, well, see, it's part of, it is part of the Ten Commandments. And um, it, it's a little bit tricky because the Ten Commandments are basically God's moral law. It's a summary of God's moral law, whereas there are other aspects of God's law that are strictly civil, as in state relations, or, uh, or ceremonial, as in temple work. Um, I believe that Christians, uh, generally speaking, are free uh, first of all, the Sabbath, we believe, is Sunday, properly, because it's the day of resurrection. So, and I don't even know that Christians really ought to use the word Sabbath, although I'm not opposed to the word Sabbath, and we teach it in the Ten Commandments. So I don't want to be unclear, but I, 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 there's not uniformity in Christian thought of how we should observe the Sabbath. I was watching a documentary yesterday or two days ago on Amazon, and it was just stories of families. It was just like... 
kind of like documenting big families in American history, like like not famous families, just normal families. And one of the common features is that on Sunday, they all went to church, no matter what, and they did not work. And these were farmers. You know, on a farm, you always have work to do. Yeah. I guess they milk the cows. You got to milk the cow. Yes. But they did not plow. They did not harvest. They did not work. And they had nothing else to do. No TV, no... Sunday. On Sunday. So many Christians have taken that very seriously. I think it's a challenge in our world because everything is open on Sunday. Um, I tell the story, I vividly remember one Easter Sunday when I really wanted to mow my yard because I just was tired of the grass being tall. And I asked myself, is it appropriate for me to mow my yard after church, of course, on Easter Sunday? I mean, I was a pastor. And then I thought, well, what did Jesus rise from the dead for if not for me to mow my yard or not mow my yard? Isn't that what freedom is? I don't know. It may have been wrong for me to mow my yard. I didn't do it out of any sense of offense. Like, I'll show you, God, I'm going to mow my yard today. But I thought, well, if freedom, um, I don't know if that was an abuse of freedom or not. That's kind of what I'm getting at. But generally, I, I would probably sigh, come down on the side that Christian freedom is such that there are things we don't go beyond, but mowing the yard on Sunday, to me, is within the realm of freedom. Because, in fact, I, I kind of, don't tell my wife this, but I kind of enjoy mowing the yard. I kind of find it recreational because I'm outside. And because... Yeah. Yeah. It kind of is, like, kind of free, you know. Uh, and uh, and I like the idea of cutting, you know, getting it nice and trim, you know. So, um, anyway. So, that's the distinction he's making. He's saying, he's saying, if you... To put it simply, he says, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. So, the, the difference would be, if I observe the Sabbath rest as a condition of law, then I would say the corollary is I would be obligated to follow the whole law. You see? Same with circumcision, same with tithing, and we could come up with other examples, I'm sure, as well. But that's what Paul's issue really was. Um, <clears throat> he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, working through love. Um, let me keep running a little bit. Uh, well, let me, let me end that paragraph. He says, uh, verse 11, he says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Do y'all see that in verse 12? What does your translation have? What is it? Castrate. Castrate. Yeah, that's verse 12. That's what he's saying. He's saying if you're gonna if you're gonna take off a little foreskin, you take the whole thing, you know? So Paul is being very clear. I mean, you cannot avoid this here. And he's saying, look, if you're gonna that's the thing. If you go any of if you go anyway, you gotta do the whole thing. Okay? So it's like an all or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. He says in verse 14, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember what I said, people think the gospel is love. Well, in a sense, the gospel, you could say that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us, that whoever believes in him would not die but have eternal life. That's the famous verse John 3, 16. 
So yeah, it's God's love for people that he died for us through his son. But people think the gospel is love and that the gospel is us loving each other. That's not the gospel. That's the law. That's what you ought to be doing. It doesn't save you, though. Um, um, so let's look at verse uh, 16 and 17. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Um, so, the problem, every, t- every time the gospel is proclaimed, the problem is always going to be this. Oh, you're saying I don't have to do anything to be a Christian. And so, in our day, we see what I would call are sort of like libertine Christians. You know, people who think, well, you know, I went to church once, I, I got baptized once, so now I'm okay. Or I said the prayer once, so now I'm okay. And, you know, once the gospel is proclaimed, then Paul says, well, what are your, what, how ought you to live as a Christian? It's not that you have to live that way to be saved. Remember, he's making a very clear distinction. If you think you can be saved by the law, you don't understand the gospel. But once you understand that the law doesn't save you, the question is, how then ought we to live? Does that mean that we ignore the law of love? No. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, you should war against the desires of the flesh because the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. You can't have both at the same time. So an easy example in the modern age would be if someone says, well, I'm a Christian, but I really like to look at pornography. See, those are one is a desire of the spirit, one is a desire of the flesh. Those two things aren't compatible, you know. And um, I've said, we look around at the church today and we think, why is the church growing, or why isn't the church growing? And to me, I think pornography, as much as I hate talking about it, is the number one culprit because you've got such a vast dispersion of it, and I think it keeps people away from the church. So I've kind of made myself have to talk about it. because it's, it's, I think, something that definitely keeps people away from the church. But that is a typical desire of the flesh, and then we have desires of the spirit. Now, can we do things and be forgiven of them and repent of them? Of course. But to carry on in that life doesn't happen. In fact, if you look in verse uh, 18, he says, If you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. He says, verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident. In fact, I would say every human being knows what the works of the flesh are. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the question isn't, do any of us ever do any of those things, or have we ever done any of these things? Yeah, we've all had fits of anger, we've all had rivalries, we've all fell prone to sexual immorality, but as a Christian, we should fight against those things. And over time, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, we will grow in our sanctification, we'll grow in our our holiness. Um, But I think that someone who says to God, or wants to say to God, this is who I am, this is who I was created to be, accept me as I am. To that person, I would quote, 
Paul in verse 21, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a difference between battling against the flesh and giving into the flesh. And the most ex- obvious example of this in, our, in the church today is homosexuality. Uh, although now that's expanding to other things. Polyamory and transgender issues and all that, which complicate the matter. Is someone who understands himself to be a woman really engaged in homosexuality if they're with a man, but they're biologically a man? <laughs> it gets complicated. But, you know, in fact, I just on my radio show on Thursday, I had two Methodists, because the Methodist church is going through what the Lutheran church has already gone through on the issue of homosexuality. And I had a woman who was justifying, you know, homosexuality as not being against God's will, and a more conservative Methodist who was saying it is against God's will. So, you know, you have people who are coming into the church and saying, hey, this is who I am. This is how I was born. It's good. And the church is trying to say, no, no. If you justify yourself, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Um, So that's what Paul's talking about there. Now, verse 22 gets to a very famous couple of verses. You may have heard of this. When, When you're a kid, you're often taught the fruits of the Spirit in Bible school or vacation Bible school or Sunday school or something like that. This would be an excellent verse to memorize. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Just a fantastic passage. You see, anytime the gospel is proclaimed, the free gift of grace, there's always going to be people who say, okay, well then now am I free to live how I want? And um, what Paul's saying is, no, you can't have the, this battle between the Holy Spirit. You can't have a battle between you know, living in the spirit, but then disobeying, but then giving over to the flesh, right? And, and, and a real simple thing you could, you could say, if I was a street preacher, for example, I could use these verses and I could preach. I could say, which life do you want? Do you want a life of sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, etc.? Or do you want a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Everyone would choose the second. That doesn't mean everybody does, Right? So, um, but everybody knows the, the, the work of the Spirit is to give us a good life. The life of the Spirit is a good life. But it's not always the life that we want because we, there are other things in the world that look so much better. So, um, but in the end, certainly uh, those who are obedient to the Spirit, I think, will find the good life. Okay, we've got one more chapter, uh, and it's a pretty short chapter. Um, but any any questions or any thoughts or any anything on what we've what we've gone through so far? Sound good? It's it's a tough thing, I have to say. I mean, and it is something every Christian has to battle their whole life. Is is this free gift of grace, but then obedience to the to the law? You've got to understand that you you're not obedient to receive the gospel. You're obedient because of the gospel. And if you get that right, you really understand the difference between the law of God and the gospel of God. And a lot of churches get that wrong. And that is, that, and, 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 and let me just take a historical diversion here. 
One of the reasons I teach Galatians as well is because if you're being baptized into this church, you're being baptized into the Lutheran church. And, you know, the, the issue that Luther historically was dealing with in 1517 was the selling of indulgences, which were these papal pieces of paper, basically, that would, for money, get, one of, get you or one of your relatives out of purgatory quicker. Now, I don't even think purgatory exists, so there's that. Again, it's a tradition that's, in my opinion, unbiblical. Um, I do think that there are, that heaven and hell are not fully realized yet. I think those are future states, what I'd call future states. Heaven and hell, as in the gates of heaven and the gates of hell being fully open, that hasn't, that won't happen until Jesus comes again. So we are still waiting for Jesus to come back to judge the living and the dead. And so we say in our creed every week, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that's, we're saying that is a future state. So heaven and hell properly are future states. I do believe there are intermediate states where the dead now exist um, apart from their bodies. And heaven and hell will be reunited with our body. Because when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection of the dead. That's what we're saying. We're talking about our bodies being raised from the dead. Um, So we'll, we'll talk about that when we look at the creed. But I do think that people exist right now spiritually, but not bodily, the dead that is, in either a place that you might call paradise or you might call Hades. It's a Greek word, or prison. Um, Peter says that Jesus, after his death, went to preach to the spirits in prison. It's a weird phrase. I don't think that people who trust in Christ go to prison. (laughs) Jesus says to the thief on the cross with him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So those are the images of where people go between their death and Jesus coming again. I don't know what it's like in those places. Uh, it may yeah. be that... Yeah, you want to be in paradise. Yeah, it's better than prison. And I don't know what time is like there. See, I don't know if, Paul, I don't know if St. Paul is up there going, huh, it's, uh, it's 1035 in Houston, it's 135 here. I don't know, maybe time just goes by like that. I don't know. Um, And it doesn't really matter. Because like you said, I'd rather be in paradise than prison. But those are the biblical images. Okay, so that's that's purgatory. So So I do think there could be an intermediary place, but the idea of purgatory was that that is where Christians would go to purge their other sins that they'd committed. Venial sins, mortal sins. And the indulgence was something you could buy to shed some years off of that. On its face, it's ridiculous. But the Pope said it, people believed it, and they made a lot of money. Yeah, lots of, uh, you know, St. Peter's, for example, the Vatican itself, I mean, was, was essentially built on the sale of these indulgences. Anyway, when, po- when Luther posted the 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, it was against the sale of indulgences. It was about more than that, but it was at least against the sale of indulgences. 
And that is what began the Reformation, in essence. Um, and But it became about more than that. And it became about the way that a Christian... Why doesn't a Christian have to worry about purgatory at all? Because of the work of Christ, you know. Because of... Hey, how you doing? Um, because of the work of Christ. Because of the gospel. Because of the free nature of the gospel. So you don't have to worry about purgatory because of the gospel. And, and so, in essence, what happened with the Reformation was, was a modern-day living out of Galatians, where you had to distinguish between the freeing gospel of Christ with the law that Christians are obligated to fulfill. And that still remains a, di a divide between Roman Catholics and those of the Reformed tradition, Lutherans, or most Calvinists, and, and so forth, um, and even some Baptists, and so forth. Well, I'd say all Baptists, but, you know, it's still the difference of, you know, understanding that you are saved by faith through grace, and those things alone, on the merits of Christ alone. The Catholic Church will kind of agree with that, but they redefine grace in a way that it kind of makes it untrue. Um, you know, because Catholics still, in essence, would argue that, yes, you're saved by grace, but what grace is, is something within you that allows you to do good works. So if you ask a Roman Catholic, are good works necessary for salvation? They would say yes. Sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not sacrifice animals, but sacrifice yourself. Right, right. Yeah, right. Roman Catholic is like that because the one that fundated the Roman was Constantino. Well, I think the nature of man is always to be pagan. I really do. I think man's man's nature is to want to be because we want to control our future, our destiny. Catholics have things like that, not exactly like if we got a god from from the rain, but you got a lot of saints. And Catholics are like, oh, do you I'm looking for a job? Oh, if you talk to this saint, he's a good for finding a job. Yeah, see, it's, I think it's still like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the patron saint of, of yeah. Yeah, of, of you know, Saint Jude is the patron saint of lost causes, you know, and uh, yeah. and they have saints for you know the lost things. You lost money, well, pray to a saint. So that yeah. I was watching um, when I was a kid. I loved the show Unsolved Mysteries. I would watch it when I was a kid. I look, I watch it now, and I'm like, that was inappropriate, you know. But it's on Amazon. Uh, they just put it out on Amazon, and there was an episode I vividly remembered when I was a kid. And it was the building of a staircase at the Loretta Chapel in Santa Fe. And we went to Santa Fe a couple years ago and saw the staircase. And I was like, I want to see that staircase because I remember it from Unsolved Mysteries. And it's basically a beautiful little chapel in Santa Fe. And like in the early part of last century, they needed a staircase because they built a choir loft. But you know how you got to it? With a ladder. So here you have a bunch of nuns and their full habits, like having to climb up a ladder to like a 20-foot, you know, choir loft. I don't know why they didn't build a staircase when they were building the chapel. But anyway, they didn't. So they have this tiny little space, and it was a really 
challenge. Carpenters looked at it and they're like, I can't build a staircase to get to the top. So they said a, a prayer to St. Joseph, the patron saint of carpenters. And a special Divinia prayer, I don't even know. Anyway, three days later, uh, who now we now think is probably an, a European uh, immigrant, um, who we think we know who he Anyway, Unsolved Mysteries, they say they know who he was. Anyway, he shows up and he builds this incredible staircase. It's 33 steps. Jesus lived 33 years. And it does not have a center pole. So it, it holds together of its own geometrical design. And there are still people who look at it today and think, wow, this is an incredible achievement architecturally and design-wise because it gets, you know, it's very narrow. And anyway, but it, uh, that, uh, that staircase to this day, the nuns still say it was a miracle answered by a prayer to St. Joseph. And as a Lutheran, I have to say, that kind of talk I find troublesome. Um, because ultimately, uh, you know, I'm not putting God, I'm not putting God in a box. I mean, we, God can answer prayer. But, you know, God is a God of means, you know, and that's, that's a very reformed idea. You know, how does God effectuate things through the world? Through means. Like, how does, how do people hear the gospel? Someone, someone says it to them. Some, another person speaks it. Uh, sure, God could just give everyone a revelation, you know, but God doesn't work that way. God is a God of means. So why do I do evangelism even though I believe God is sovereignly in control of the entire universe? Because I might be the means through which someone else is saved, you know? Yeah. So, um, and so I, who am I to say, God, you just miraculously saved people and I'm going to sleep in today. You know, um, anyway, so, uh, I mean, I know people who, who preach at abortion clinics and they're, I can guarantee if you go down to San Jacinto, there's 10 people right now preaching to people who are driving into the abortion clinic. Why are they there? Why doesn't God just tell everyone who wants to have an abortion today to not have it? Because God has got a means and God is using those people to try to preach those people away from that place. So, um, Yeah. I do think that the saints and everything can really closely resemble pagan idolatry. Sorry, but I do. Um, and, and I think Mary is at the top of that. Well, uh, Catholic, you know? Catholic stories, Mary, she yeah. yeah you, you just don't see it biblically. You don't see Mary lifted up biblically in that way. And I think even for the early centuries of the church, you don't see it. And, you know... Mary has really become an intercessor between you and Jesus. And the irony is that Jesus is the intercessor, the only intercessor, between man and God. I mean, Jesus is God, but between, you know, between us and the Father, the Father of wrath, the Father of judgment, and the Father of love, is the Son. And so that is the intercessor. Jesus is the intercessor. And so now we've put Mary, or Roman Catholics, I think, have put Mary as an intercessor between us and the Son. It's, 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 it's unnecessary, and it's biblically it's wrong. But that's why we have Scripture alone. Remember I said the four solos of the Reformation? Faith alone, through grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone. That Scripture, that's where it really comes into play. That's the tradition versus the Scripture. And uh, in that sense, I think Roman Catholics are wrong. So 
the, the, the importance of Galatians ties into the Lutheran story because what Luther was arguing for were those solas, those, those, those alones, those reclaiming and rediscovering the gospel. That's what we think happened at the Reformation. It was the gospel was always there. It was always in the scripture. It just had been hidden by years of church tradition. And so it was a rediscovery of the gospel, the radical nature of the gospel. Remember when I said earlier, good people don't go to heaven and bad people go to hell? Actually, what can happen is that bad people go to heaven and good people go to hell. How, how do you have that? How does that get spun on its face? It's because the, the nature of the gospel. The gospel is not for, even Jesus himself said, I did not, doctors don't come for the sick. They, come, they, they, they don't come for the well, they come for the sick. I didn't come for righteous people. I came for sinners. I mean, that is a radical thing to say. That is a crazy thing. I mean, everybody thought that to please God, you had to be a good person, a good law-obedient person. Jesus comes and says, I'm not here for the law-obedient person. I'm here for the sinner. Does that mean you disobey the law? No. That's what Paul's, that's the struggle Paul has. Every time he preaches the gospel, he then has to say, does that mean you should disobey the law? No, you should obey the law. But you're not saved because of your obedience. You're saved because of Christ. That's a, that's a, that's a really radical thing and a, an offensive thing to many people. Let's just finish up Galatians and then we can chat more if we need to. But I know it's, we're almost out of time. So he says, um, <clears throat> beginning of verse, uh, chapter six, rather, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Okay, so... Basically, you know, this is, an, this is an important teaching for the church. If someone is in a transgressions, restore them, gently, but restore them. So does that mean, does the gospel mean, in the nature of the gospel mean, that if we see another Christian brother cheating on his wife, we say, oh, that's okay. God will forgive that. No, we restore that person. We confront that person. Say, wait a minute, brother, you're, out of, you're, you're living in, out of obedience to the law of God. You need to come repent of what you're doing and come back. Um, there's a famous apologist, Christian apologist, and he was a married man and a father, and his wife committed adultery on him. And three times he tried to restore his relationship with her, but she always chose to be with the other guy. But he felt that as a Christian, it was his duty to try to restore her to a place of righteousness, even though he was a, a victim, really, of her sin. Um, but that is how Christians behave. We try to restore one another to, to holy living in a spirit of gentleness. We don't just say, ah, oh, the gospel will cover that sin. No. Now, you can't have witch hunts. That's the, that's, the, that's the downside. I think that person is involved in something horrible. I'm going to go, you know... And you can have genuine witch hunts, like historically there were actual witch hunts where Christians actually killed people they thought were engaged in actual witchcraft. Uh, that's pretty rare, and over time the church restored that. But he said, verse, verse 6, he says, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the free flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit <clears throat> reap eternal life. Um, and let me fin- just finish that because Paul finishes it well better than I could. He says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So Paul's encouragement, his exhortation to the people, do good, do good, live well, live holyly, uh, live holy, live holy lives. Uh, if you sow in the Spirit, you'll reap in the Spirit. And I have to say, as a Christian, that is way easier than it sounds, because Christians will frequently tire of doing what is right. That is a normal thing. Uh, as a pastor, I can tell you, you will, you will tire of... If you believe you're doing the right thing within the church, you will tire of it. It will grow, it will become wearisome. And so that's why Paul's encouragement is continue to do the right thing. Continue to persevere in the Lord. Um, don't give up is, is basically what he's saying. In another, in, in 1 Corinthians, he says, it's kind of a famous, people use it a lot. He says, act like men. Oh, can't say that today. <clears throat> but it's a, it's a great line. Act like men. How are men supposed to act? Well, they're supposed to be resolute. They're supposed to be strong. They're supposed to be defenders of the family. In fact, uh, people I know that preach at the same abortion clinic, that's something they say a lot because the men will drive the women to the clinic, mm-hmm. you know, to have their own child aborted. And that's what they'll preach from the sidewalk. Be a man. Take care of your child. You know, be a, be a father, you know. It's a powerful word. So, you know, we do need to encourage, we do need that admonition to, to do well, to seek good living and be patient because it's not always easy. Let's just finish up this, this letter here. He says, uh, verse 11, he says, uh, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even though... Even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, people want you to be circumcised so, they, so, that, so that you can become a notch in their belt. Hey, look at, the, look at this guy I got circumcised. Look at what a good guy. I, I, I made that guy become a Jew. He's in the family of God. Paul's saying, no, don't listen to people like that. They just want you for a prize. And that's like the evangelist who go out and does street preaching and all he wants to get someone to do is say a prayer to accept Jesus into their heart. But they don't care if they ever go to church after that. They don't care if they ever, you know, follow up with that at all. Hey, I got them to say the sinner's prayer. They're a Christian. I saved 10 people today. What? No. No, that guy's doing that for his own glory, not for the glory of God. So, verse 14, he says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the Lord, the word, world rather, has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Uh, just a great letter. And there's actually a lot there. Let me just highlight a couple things. Again, he's saying, 
I don't boast in you. You're not my trophy. I don't go to God and say, hey, look at the Galatians. They're mine. They wouldn't be Christian if not for me. He says, I don't boast in you. I boast in the cross of Christ. And then he has a very perplexing phrase that's been debated a lot. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I think he's simply saying, I'm a servant to the world. I'm dead to the world, in essence, as Paul. I am only a servant of Christ. That's my only usefulness to the world, is to be a servant. I've been crucified to the world. It's a powerful image. And then he says, circumcision? Of course, Paul was circumcised. He was a Jew. That doesn't matter. It doesn't count for anything. Nor uncircumcision. doesn't matter. All that counts is the new creation. What's the new creation? It's the baptized believer in Christ, the person who puts his faith in Christ. They're part of the new creation. And by the way, when we talk about heaven, that's what we're talking about, a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. It's not a place where we float around in the heavens as spirits. Uh, I firmly believe that heaven will be a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, and we're all going to be out in the field doing agricultural work. (laughs) But we're going to like it. See, it sounds terrible to us now because of the fall, but I think then we're going to really enjoy it. Anyway, I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but... What's that? It'd be nice, you know. Yeah. It'd be very peaceful. We'd have everything that we needed, you know. No weeds, no thistles, no thorns. Just fruit, you know. Just good food. Um, no no hormones, no uh, MSG. MSG. <laughs> we were talking about that at dinner last night. And then he says, uh, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear my marks, my body, the marks of Jesus. I think he was literally pointing out to scars. You ever see those pictures of slaves who are whipped by their masters, you know, and they have scars all over their back? I think Paul looked like that. Uh, He says, point blank, he was beaten by rods, and they say 40 minus 1. It's a strange phrase, but he references it. See, in Jewish law, you would not beat anyone 40 times, or or 40 was the maximum. So they would always do it 40 minus 1, just in case. Just in case they had miscounted and they got to 40, you don't want to go to 41. So they would always do it 40 minus 1. So Paul talks about how he was beaten to 40 minus 1. In other words, other Jews beat Paul with rods. So you think of when I was a kid, remember that kid in Singapore? Remember that? There was, a, there was an American in Singapore and he was caned. Yeah, I remember that they televised it. Oh, it was like, yeah. It was it was bad. The Americans tried to get him from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was in, in middle school, I think, and uh, it was a big deal because you know the American diplomats were trying to keep the kid from being caned. But that's in Singapore, you don't litter, and this kid had vandalized cars and ruined cars and stuff. That's the law in Singapore. You live by the law. He didn't do it in the American embassy. He did it on Singapore streets. And so he was beaten with canes. I think that's what Paul's referencing. I think that he had marks on his body uh, when he says the marks of Christ. I think he's talking about scars of beatings that he took because he really believed in the gospel, you know, the cross of Christ. Um, And also he begins that section. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Paul normally would have had, uh, I think it's called an amanuensis. I think that's what it's called. It's someone who wrote as he dictated. You know, he would speak and someone would write. And uh, what if we had the physical copy of this letter, and we don't, we don't have the original, but if we had the physical copy of this letter, 
what we would see is handwriting, and then we'd get to verse. Of course, he didn't write in verses and chapters, but at, near the end of the letter, all of a sudden, the handwriting would have changed. And that was Paul's way of saying, I'm writing this. These are my, this is my handwriting. And, and it's theorized that he was blind or a going blind. And that's the thorn in the flesh he talks about in other letters. And he talks about in one place, I think it's in Galatians, we think we, is in chapter 3, where he says, you would have gouged out your eyes for me. And some people think that's an indication that he was going blind and other people loved him so much they would have given their own eyes. Of course, they didn't know how to do eye transplants then, and I guess we still don't. But cornea transplants, but not eye transplants. Anyway, so that's the, that's the idea is that he was blind and he had to write in big letters. I don't know. It's speculation. But there's actually a lot in that little section there that's interesting. Anyway, why Galatians? Because Galatians is a great way to understand the distinction between the law and the gospel. Circumcision is not an issue for us anymore. You know, I mean, we still practice it in hospitals, but not as a matter of, of a ritual. More like a health thing. Um, and he says, look, neither circumcision counts nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So that's not the point. The, the point is for the, <clears throat> for the Christian to know the distinction between the law of God and the gospel of God. And very simply what I say is the law is what we should do and, and the gospel is what God has done for us. If you can understand that relationship, that you're not, you don't, you're not obedient to the law to be saved, but you're obedient to the law because you're saved. If you understand that, you understand a lot about Lutheranism, you understand a lot about the Reformation, differences between the Lutheran and the Catholic Church, but more importantly, you understand the nature of the Scriptures and the revelation of God. Because that is who God is and that's what people do.